welcome to The Guide Sessions, a podcast where we talk about stories of adventure through the tales of the guides who experience them. I'm your host, Jim Aiken. Welcome to the show. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Jim Aiken. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your support. If you like what you hear, feel free to rate and subscribe. Now, on to today's featured guest, the man who took a chance on me, Jonathan Bush, owner of Grouse Mesa Outfitters in New Mexico. Jonathan grew up being a real-life cowboy, riding the range, sleeping under the stars, all while tending to a herd of cattle, which eventually led him to an opportunity to start guiding elk hunts. In this episode, we will discuss his journey into starting Grouse Mesa Outfitters, the importance of good stock, what characteristics he looks for in a guide, as well as some stories of things that went wrong, and some stories of things that went right. So, ladies and gentlemen, hold on to your reins. It's Jonathan Bush talking with me on the Guide Sessions Podcast. Welcome, guys. Welcome to the podcast today. I've got a great guest. He's the guy who gave me my first shot at guiding big game. Um, he's known as the Beast of the North. Uh, Jonathan Bush with Grouse Mesa Outfitters. How you doing, man? Doing well. Thank you. How are you doing? Oh, man. It's uh, it's it's winter. Christmas. We're recording this thing in a couple weeks before Christmas, so everybody's getting ready for that. I'm sure you, with all your kids, you got things going on there. Yeah, we're blessed to have a little snow, so the kids get home from school. They got about 20 minutes of light in the day left, so they just try to go sledding, and it's it's busy and fun. Yeah, that's good. Snowmans, is it is it wet snow? You can start building all the snowmans? Uh, not right now. It's just been powdery, powdery. dry. Eh, still fun, though. Snowboarding. Snowboarding. I like to see your tall butt on a snowboard. Oh, you wouldn't. I <laughs> <laughs> I can ski, but I don't snowboard. Yeah. Yeah. What? What? The listeners, what you guys don't know, Jonathan's what? You're like what? Six five. Six four. Six four. Yeah. Blessing and a curse. Yes. Yes. Because I'm 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 six two, so I'm not too far off, and you know, blessing and curse all the way. Yeah. Sometimes the hunters like, how do you see that elk? And I point, and they're like, I can't see that. And other times they'll see an elk, and I'm looking around. You have to bend down and look under the branches. Oh, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here, step on this stump. You can see what I see. But, uh, but yeah, that's always the biggest thing is about when uh, hunters get in camp, we always warn people that if you go with Jonathan, he's like a mountain goat because he's got them long legs and like three steps, he's up the mountain and you're still chugging along, you know, 400 yards behind. <laughs> it's always hard when anybody comes from low elevation and they're paired up with any guide. It doesn't matter where they're from. If the guide's been there a while, they get acclimated and they're used to climbing the hills. And it's hard. Most of the guides are young, and so they can move around pretty well. I do have a bigger stride, so I tend to walk faster than some of the guides. But 
the goal is not to walk the hunter to death. It's to go at their pace. So you just got to be mindful of that and try to do that. At the same time, you're hunting elk and you want to give them their best chance. So it's a balanced game. How fast do you walk? How fast can this hunter go? How much should I push them? But uh, Yeah, because the last thing you need is the hunter there, you know, huffing and puffing. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That's what the horses are for, though. That's <laughs> right. Yep, the horses. Yeah, but uh, I guess before we get too deep into that, I guess maybe let's um, bring it back to the beginning a little bit. Just uh, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, uh, you know, where you grew up, where you're from, where you're at right now? Yeah, I grew up in the San Luis Valley in Colorado, south central Colorado. It's a, I believe it's the highest mountain valley in the world that's that large. It's a very large valley. It's about... 7,000 plus feet at the bottom of it, and it's surrounded by mountains all around. The eastern sides, the Cresto, uh, Cresto Needles on the north, and the Sangre de Cristos on the east. San Antonio Mountain is on the southern side, and the western is full of the San Juan Mountains, uh, all part of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, some of them are 14,000 foot peaks and some are 10 to 12,000 depending on where you go but so I grew up in the valley there uh, learned to love the mountains and everything that it had to offer I went hunting as a young kid with my dad a few times and we never got one no and I didn't so know that I didn't know that That's my crazy. brother and I went several times with my dad and he shot some elk uh, we went with a bow quite a bit and then with muzzleloaders. And we, we got opportunities and we shot elk, but we never got them. And it was a, like the curse. It's our, the bush curse. <laughs> Couldn't get one. So later when we were a little older teenagers, my brother and I, man, it was like a, from being 12 to 15, we never got anything. So it was a challenge that was greater than, in our minds at least than what other kids might feel at least this is how i perceive it to mm -hmm. be we went out with determination we were going to get something and we made a lot of mistakes uh, of course we're kids didn't uh, our dad was good and he tried to teach us but i'm sure we didn't do it quite right uh, and we, we learned from our mistakes and we ended up getting really successful here when we would go to college, we would shoot an elk in the early archery season, take it to school with us, eat it before Christmas, come home, get a private landowner's cow tag, go shoot two more elk. <laughs> that would be the rest of the semester until spring. And we did that for several years in a row. Uh, and then that ended up just meeting people through our, our jobs in the mountains. Uh, my job was a, a range rider, so I was a, a cowboy for a cattle association through the summer months, the grazing period. But I spent a lot of time up in the mountains on a horse by myself. And I met some other hunters that were scouting, and they were looking for somebody to help pack out an elk if they got lucky and got one. And this was on public land in northern New Mexico, where we're at, where I was working. And... Uh, 
so I met some people. I told them, yeah, I can pack your elk out. And we did. I gave them my brother's number. Uh, some of the times I wasn't going to be there. So I would call my brother and he could help pack them out. So we met some people and talked for several years. And he's like, hey, why don't we go hunting together? I was like, okay. I'm like, well, we don't know the area. We don't know anything. So we'll come with you. Like, well, <laughs> all, right. all right. So we took, uh, this was uh, Dwayne and Mark, and we went hunting in the sa- South San Juan Wilderness in Colorado with over-the-counter bow tags, all of us. And we went up there for a week and practically guided them, my brother and I. We had a blast. So that was my first experience kind of guiding someone. Okay. And after, shortly after that, the, the following year, actually, uh, a piece of property that my family, my extended family, owns. And we run, cow, my family has ran cows on this property in New Mexico. It's about a 7,000 acre ranch. The outfitter that was leasing the place was no longer leasing it. And so a window of opportunity came for me to jump in and lease it to do the outfitting on this property. I thought, I got to do it. I love hunting. That is like my life. Right, yeah. (laughs) So I did. I found out what I needed to do and, and just got the duck lined up and became an outfitter (laughs) running some hunts there that we get the private landowner tags for and it was a challenge finding guides in the fall to help me because it's a seasonal uh, now your, your challenge in finding the guides at that time was that simply because you were so new and just didn't have you know have a network of people Partly. That was one of the challenges. The other challenge was I knew a lot of people that liked to hunt. I'm sure everybody knows people that like to hunt and they might say, yeah, I can come help you for a day or two, but, and maybe even a week, which would be great because the hunts run five days. Um, maybe I could find somebody to help for a week or two. These mm-hmm. are I was allotted so many tags and we get about 40 tags a year it was hard to get somebody who could help the whole time because we can't run all the 40 hunts in a week or two. I had to spread them out at least six weeks yeah, minimum and uh, try not to get more than eight hunters in a week. And so it was hard to get a guide or just find any guides that could help these two weeks and then the next two weeks and and it was pretty hard logistically finding help. Um, I went to some shows, some expos, and got a booth set up. I went to the Eastern, uh, the big one there, Eastern Sports and Outdoor Show. Yeah, the one in Harrisburg. Yeah, that's where I met you. Yep, yep. <laughs> I think I went on 2011. That was the first year. Yeah. I went there, and... I didn't know what I was doing hardly. I was just kind of going out on a limb, doing what I was able to research that was good to do. And and when we first met, uh, you asked if you could come just kind of 
follow along and take some pictures, maybe video some stuff. And yeah, like I'll just volunteer my time, just find a way to wedge myself in there somehow, you know, because I, I don't yeah. know if you remember me telling you, but like I, I'd never even seen an elk, let alone like heard an elk bugle at all. It, just, it, it was just an opportunity. Right. And so I think at that time, neither one of us really could see the future and knew what was expected or what to expect. Yeah. Um, when you came out, I was like, all right, here, well, follow me around with this camera and let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And, and it was great. And I think we did that for two years. You come out for one or two weeks at the beginning. I don't remember if it was two weeks. I think it was one. Yeah. Well, that first, yeah, that first year I was out there for two weeks. Yeah, I felt I, I was your shadow for two weeks, and then the next year is when I started guiding. But even then, that second year, I was kind of guiding, but I was still kind of following you around at the same time. <laughs> right. And I remember asking if you felt comfortable guiding because I needed some help. Right. <laughs> and uh, so that's how you came in the picture, mm-hmm. which was a neat coincidence i guess yeah it was this coincidence of of recognizing opportunity um i kind of talked about this on the intro podcast for before this one where i just kind of talked about my story but um but to give a quick recap yeah it, it was the opportunity was something that i had and something i wanted to do and it's been something i was wanting to do for a long time and it was an instance where I recognized an opportunity and realized that I needed to capitalize on the opportunity because I didn't know when the next one's going to happen. So 2011, I said, I'll get myself out there. Just pick me up at the airport, feed me, give me shelter, drop me off at the airport. I'll volunteer my time 100%. And you were like, deal. You know, and I was like, and I'll fall around. I'll be your shadow with a video camera. And that's how it all started. So a lot of times it's got to have like an investment on some person to start, especially when you don't have any experience. You got, you got, you can't just walk in and say, I want to do this. But at the same time, you have to have kind of like a trade, like something to offer at the same time. Like, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this for you. And hopefully it will lead to something down the road. Right. But every person that I've ever had work for me has had to show some sort of experience level or, have something to offer for me to want to take the chance to have them guide. Because mm-hmm. as a guide, they're the part of the face of the business. And you hope that every guide is equally the same in their abilities. Um, but they're not. Some have strengths in some ways and some have strengths in other ways. And that's been a, a blessing in in some ways, because um, what I like to do, maybe we'll get into this later, but as we take the hunters in, we have a 12-mile horseback ride in from the trailhead to the cabin. And on that trip, that's when I get to meet the hunters really for the first time. You talk to them, email them, but you don't know them. So this horse ride gives me a chance to meet people, talk to them, kind of see what their abilities might be how well they can handle a horse how they like riding a horse just how they can move around how the altitude might affect them about halfway to the cabin we'll get off and walk for several hundred yards take a break stretch the knees out you know 
and then I get to see how people are doing. Sometimes they can hop right back on that horse, no problem. Sometimes they're, oh man, wow. Most of the time, everybody's like that as soon as they get off. <laughs> uh, we recommend practicing before they come, but unfortunately, not too many of them. And even ones that do, it's great to go ride, and every little bit helps. Don't get me wrong. Everything anybody can do to prepare themselves will get them that step that much closer to uh, having a good experience. It just helps build on the experience. But most of the time when people do practice riding, it's only for 20 minutes, half an hour, maybe an hour. Yeah, they'll, they'll go take a, like an hour lesson at the local horse place. Yeah. And so this first ride in is between three and four hours long, right off the get-go. Well, boom. It's the biggest ride of the, the week. Uh, usually when we go hunting, it's only an hour, hour and a half tops. We'll ride out from the cabin. But so that initial ride in helps me see how the hunters are. And then I can think in my mind, you know, what guide would fit with what hunter. And so the different abilities for the different guides just seems to pair up and match with the different abilities and and the personalities of the hunters. Yeah, that's probably as as an outfitter, that's probably like one of your hardest things to do is to match is to match the guide with with the hunter and vice versa. Simply because like you said, as guides we're the face of the business and our you know our job is pretty much to make sure that they've got the best experience possible. And if there's personality conflicts or personality differences, it's not going to work out. Right. You know, 99% of the people that come hunting have great personalities. And sometimes they don't really know what to expect because they've never done something like this before. Go on a guided hunt. Sometimes they do know what to expect. Um, but most of the time, they're they're easy, great people. Love them, all of them. And every once in a while, which is very rare, you get a bad egg that, for whatever reason, the world to them is against them, and they can shoot the biggest bull in the world and have a bad experience. So, who do you pair that guy up with? <laughs> That's the you. <laughs> yeah, that's your guy. But yeah, one of the things that I kind of want to back up a little bit when you first started out with Dwayne and Mark about how fun it was. So why do you really enjoy guiding? Because I mean, granted, you, you still get to hunt, you know, you do other things, but like, why do you enjoy guiding so much? Like what drives you to do this year after year after year? Well, it's kind of several fold an answer. The, the initial reason that pe most people would think of is for well, the money. It's a job. Mm -hmm. Well, that's part of it, but it's not the main reason. You know, they say you can work your whole life, but if you like what you do, you're not working a day. Well, I like what I do, so it's it is work, but it's a a work that you can get lost in and enjoy it. And so, I do enjoy all of it. The, some of the parts that really stick out as being enjoyable is. Seeing people's reactions to the landscape, to the elk and the wildlife, just the scenery, 
the horses. A lot of times, this is their first confrontation with any of this stuff, and they're they're at awe with how big the mountains are, how short it is on oxygen. <laughs> uh, well, a lot of times, the the female hunters are more emotional that way, so they can they'll let you know how how they feel their emotions are on their sleeves and sometimes it's it's pretty cool to see people react the way they do they can uh if people don't believe in god and they go hunting in the mountains in god's country they know that there's a god mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah you can't go up there and and deny that there's a creator <laughs> and so it's just neat to see people get so happy and excited. And then when they get to see elk, I know there's a lot of hunters that go out there and they, for whatever reason, have a, a bad experience. They don't see any elk. They maybe see an elk a mile away. The elk are always on the neighbors. You know, there's lots of different reasons they don't see elk or don't get into the elk. But where we're at, we're blessed with this amazing property in the region roundabout host large population of elk and elk are always there mm-hmm. so we're the elk and so people get to be in the elk they get to hear the bugles and see them sometimes that's a first for a lot of people and elk are big they're not like a a goat <laughs> right yeah they're not a speed goat at all i mean that's that's probably one of the things that i almost want to say that i'm spoiled a little bit guiding for Grouse Mesa, the fact that there is such an abundance of elk in the area that we are. That's one of the things I always thought about was like going out west, you hear about these guys and they don't see stuff for weeks on end. Now, granted, yeah, this is private ground, but think that a lot of people are going to say, oh, it's private ground. You know, you guys, it's a high fence. This isn't high fence. Almost in the sense that, yeah, it's 7,000 acres, but like I feel handicapped or handcuffed sometimes because, granted, the property is 7,000 acres. Elk travel a lot. There's just so many times we get stopped by that darn fence. If it was, like, public ground where you've got hundreds of thousands of acres, you know, it's not as restrictive. Right. Uh, Even as big as it is, like you said, the elk travel so much. Um I'm just going to throw this out there. I've seen through the years of doing this and just growing up shed hunting, I would find sheds of the same bulls sometimes year after year. And sometimes you find a shed that, oh, you hope he sticks around and maybe he didn't get shot. But you'll never find a shed for him. And I found, to go along with this, I found two collars from elk that have been collared. Okay. They died. One collar was from Chama. The elk was collared right across the mountain there in Chama. The other collar was collared in Wyoming. Oh, wow. So a whole state and a half away. And so I've come up with this theory that there's two types of elk. There's residential elk that will have a territory maybe 100, 150 miles big. And they're always moving in, in that area. Mm-hmm. Or might be, you know, smaller territories. They might stick around somewhere if they think they really like it. They got the shelter and 
elk and the hiding spots that they want to stay in. But there's another type of elk that I call the nomadic elk. They're always on the go. And they'll just travel. And sometimes you'll see the bulls that have the dark antlers. They've been rubbing in pine trees and, and sap and, and darker soils. And then sometimes you find the antlers that got the orange hue to them. And they're rubbing on cedar trees or sandstone and they're more white. They're just different uh, habitat that they were breaking their antlers in. The area that we're in, it, it doesn't have any of that cedar, doesn't have any of the red dirt. So these antlers that are really orange and red, they got to come in from somewhere else. Hmm. And I think elk are travelers. So they, the nomadic elk, residential elk and nomadic elk. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good theory. Granted, probably no science base back behind it, but still, it makes a lot of sense. I'd probably say one of the cool parts, I can't say it's always my favorite part of guiding with grouse mace, is the horses. <laughs> um, For a lot of laughs on any different reason. Yeah. Yeah, I've had some adventures, some good and some bad with horses. But yeah, so what, what makes you stay traditional in that sense of doing the horseback? Now, yeah, we do got some rangers and stuff that run around in but we always try and do as many horseback stuff as possible. So what makes you kind of stay that traditional route? Oh, uh, there's a couple of reasons. I think the first one is I just really grew up with horses uh, going to that cabin that we hunt out of. I grew up there and we would always ride horses in the same way the hunters come in. Mm-hmm. So my whole life, we never took a ranger or ATV in. Very rarely we'd even took a truck in. We just rode horses in. Uh, there is the one road that comes around, goes to the cabin, and then that's it. So getting across the river was inaccessible for the longest time unless you had a horse. Huh. That was the only way. And even on Sunshine, the eastern part of the property, to get up there, you either have to walk or ride a horse. Most people don't want to hike to the top of a hill that's a couple miles long. They'll be so tired and out of breath by the time they get there. To, and then to turn around and go right back down, that's a lot of work. So horses take more, the biggest part of the hiking out of it. Mm-hmm. It's uh, something I grew up with. I'm very comfortable and knowledgeable about horses and what's needed there. So I, I feel like it could be my niche. It's what what I can be good at. And this property is perfectly suited for it. I know a lot of the neighboring properties and, and other outfitters don't use horses, uh, mostly because it's just easier and more convenient to hop on a Ranger or a ATV, side-by-side, a truck, whatever, and just zip up and down the roads. Yeah. Um, and that's a successful way to do it and sometimes the hunters like that so i said well why don't i use horses and then if somebody wants to use a horse like if that's what they're looking for i'll be what they're for right plus if you anybody's ever hunted without horses and then hunted with horses at least if you got a hike somewhere off the road it's hard to go back if you've hunted with horses. I don't ever <laughs> want to a horse again. Right, yeah. 
packing out part. Yeah, they, they definitely, uh, the horses definitely make it real easy uh, and real convenient to with a pack out. I've had to haul a couple things, you know, on my back just out of down timber and stuff. Like, man, there's like, there's just no way we can get the horse in here real safe and efficiently. Let's just haul it out to where the horse can get it. It's a chore, but it's definitely when you can get it to that spot where you can throw it in that pack saddle and you're like, whew, okay, that's off my back now. As hard as it is for us to go 50 yards or 100 yards, that the horse go miles and no problem. Yeah. Part part of that is having good stock. You know, you got to have good horses. You can't just buy some horse out of the sale ring or get somebody's horse that's never been out of a arena and go think you're going to pack an elk off the mountain. Mm-hmm. That just doesn't happen. They got to know what they're doing too. And so being a rancher coupled with the outfitting, I have the stock. We use it all the time to chase cows. I got a lot of kids, so we got a lot of well-broke horses for the kids, which work perfect for hunters. Uh, goes well together. It's funny how things like work out in, the, in that sense. When you when you got the tools, you can use them, and when you got good tools, it just makes the job that much easier. Yep. Yep, that's right. The horses don't always start off good. You gotta they gotta get experience too. Mm-hmm. So yeah. another thing as far as the guides go, some of the guides are really great with horses, some of them aren't. Some of them have horse experience, some of them don't. Sometimes, you know, as an outfitter you look for a guide. There's so several things you look for. You want a guide that first and foremost knows how to hunt elk and wants to. And then the second part of that is, well, what are their people skills? What if they have horrible relationship skills with communicating with hunters? Right. So they got to have a lot, uh, a repertoire of abilities to be the face of your business. And you want them to have some horse skills too, as part of that. So, you know, horse, uh, uh, finding a guy that knows horses, knows how to hunt and is good with people it's pretty difficult and sometimes if i can find just somebody with two of those skills i'll make the investment and hopefully be able to give them the experience they need and coach them a little bit so they can get all those skills yeah it's kind of like me (laughs) i'm i've got the people skills and the hunting skills but i don't know a thing about horses (laughs) well you do now yeah i do now but yeah (laughs) I do now for sure. And there's there's a little bit of trial and error in the, the learning curve. Sometimes it's steeper for certain people than it is for others. But if it gets the job done, they ask, well, what's the right way to do this? Like, Well, there is a, a right way to do it, but there's many right ways to do it. There's the right way how I do it, and that may not be the same way you did it, but it got the job done and everybody's okay and everything's safe. Mm-hmm. So it's okay. Uh, you know, there's certain knots that are better to tie than others. That way, if a horse yanks back, you can still untie it instead of having to cut the lead rope. Mm-hmm. I'm sure everybody that's experienced that before. Uh, or how you tie an elk on a horse. You know, some things you, you always want to have the, the pack balanced. So you got to have the same parts of the animal on the 
each side of the horse, try to keep it balanced. And then what do you do with the head? So a lot of times the antlers, you know, you see all the pictures with a lot of racks coming straight off the back, the top of the, the pack. And you can do that and it works fine, but some antlers are too big or don't fit. And, well, and they're it's like too to... narrow and they poke the horse in the butt. Right, right. Uh, it's easier, I've found, that you put that head and antlers on the off side. If you're leading the horse on your right side, put the elk and the antlers on the right side of the pack horse and then have it draped down around the panniers. And you just put the cape on the other side to balance the head. So you got the weight of the cape on one side and the head and the, and the rack on the other side. Right. With the, with the tines pointing away from you instead of towards you. Right. On your right. And this works really well, probably 80, 90% of the time. Sometimes the trees and vegetation is really thick and that wouldn't be the most desirable position to tie the antlers on. Um, if you're going through that thick stuff, having it on top with the tines pointed back, you probably have to put a stick or something between the saddle and the antlers to keep it floating. That'd be a easier, a more sleek, streamlined position to get through heavy brush and trees. But that other way is a lot easier and faster, and it will work most of the time. And I, I always tie it all on with the box hitch because it's fast and easy. Mm-hmm. And it's, well. So to go back to that stick thing, you know, I've seen it done and we've done it. But uh, for the listeners to kind of describe what you're talking about is basically we just find a stick that's a little bit longer than the width of the antlers. And we just use some polycord and fasten that stick to the the, you know, like the widest part of the antlers or the tip of the antlers so that it's, as it's, if it happens to bounce or something like that, it kind of hits the horse in the back and it doesn't slink down below his back and start poking his legs. It's probably the best way I can describe it. If you can, you want that stick to go across the the back of the saddle or the, the saddle blanket so that it's not rubbing on the horse's hair. Okay. Good point move that stick forward enough so that it but each ant like you said the antlers are shaped different sometimes they'll have a heavy curl one way or another so just look at each circumstance and say well how can i make this work so that it doesn't rub the horse raw but it so it's got to hold these antlers up but that's another reason i like the over the side a little easier a little faster and it'll work 90 percent of the time mm-hmm. but if you do need to use a stick sometimes you don't need a stick if the antlers are big enough they can go on both sides of the horse yeah we've done that a few times mm-hmm. putting antlers around a horse is sometimes a little tricky too uh, those horses isn't really gentle and and used to it you could poke them with a tine and have a little rodeo on hand. Yeah. Luckily, I haven't experienced that. <laughs> I remember one time I did, I was packing a bull out, and it was at night, and we had truly loaded down. And I guess I didn't tighten the the cinch tight enough, 
And she came running up beside me as calm as can be, like, was like nudging me, like, hey, something's wrong. And I, and I turned my headlamp and I look around and like the saddle's like almost completely spun sideways. You know, like, like the one, the one panniered was like on her back. And I was like, oh, <laughs> thanks for not freaking out too much. You uh-huh. know, so we had to get off and she was as calm as could be. And we, hunters helped and we just kind of shifted everything back on, tightened everything down again and we were good to go. But, uh, but yeah, it was just funny about, I was surprised how calm truly was. For those of you who don't know, truly's a, a perch drawn draft horse mare. And she's been the primary pack horse for the last 11 years. And she's probably packed out uh, two to 300 elk. So she's had a lot of experience. And she's, she's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, she's definitely a good horse. What about, uh, let's probably just jump into some, some hunting stories, if you don't mind talking about some some stories of success or lessons learned where you, you know, like, man, I wish I had that hunt back or... In, in my intro podcast, I talked about how some people maybe have like, I can't believe I'm still alive kind of story. And I kind of told my story about when I came down North Canyon that first time at night and I went up the, the creek bank, got tangled up with Gonzales and I was underneath his belly hanging off the cliff there. But I don't know. Have you had anything like that? Because, you, you know, or experience have hunters have issues like that or anybody get hurt? Well, we've had some some accidents. Sure. Uh, so most of the time, some of the accidents that have happened have been a rolled ankle here or there, which could happen to anybody anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing too big there. Uh, a couple horse accidents, um, where horses have fallen over or flipped over. Uh, and those are always unfortunate. And sometimes you can foresee the accident happening before it happens and you can try to stop it sometimes it's completely out of your control uh, as you know i want to say our horses are the best in the world mm-hmm. so they're good but they are still an animal to themselves you know they are their own bosses in the end they're the ones making the decisions to be still or freak out or you don't know what happens to them you know as they age we've had horses that have lost their eyesight in one eye or the other or both. Uh, so as some of the horses that have had that happen to them, when they lose their vision, especially at, at night, things become spooky to them because they can't see it. Mm. One horse that used to be really good, all of a sudden is now spooky. Um, I've got a, a story I could share with you. That's yeah. uh, one. It taught me to to do what you think and make sure it happens because the accident that happens here could have been avoided if I'd have acted stronger with my resolve to tell the hunter what to do. Um, I had a a hunter. He's actually the first guy who ever booked a hunt with me, and he was the greatest guy really really nice guy good a good hunter he prepared for his hunt he come out in 2010 and had a wonderful time he got a really nice bull and he was going to come out the next year and he wanted to bring a cameraman so that he could film his hunt and so uh, there's a lot more detail that could go into this and i'll stay out of that 
but to make the long story short, this hunter brought a, he was a, a young kid, I think he was 22 at the time, and to film his hunt. And we went out hunting. Uh, I have to back up and give you two stories in one. Okay. <laughs> to give you a little backstory so you can figure out how this is coming together. Uh, the kid was hunting, following the hunter and myself around with a video camera. This guy's buddy he brought with him also was hunting. And these guys are from New Jersey. And a lot of the hunters are from back east. They're from all over the place. But a, a lot of the ones back east are used to hunting in tree stands when they hunt whitetail. And the first year, I had a lot of people say, why don't you get some tree stands? You should have some tree stands up here. Well, I don't mind sitting in a tree stand. I'll sit there all day if I think I'll get an elk. So they talked me into getting some tree stands. I personally have never hunted out a tree stand. Didn't think that's the way to hunt elk. When you think of elk hunting, you don't picture yourself sitting in a tree stand. No, not at all. But it's an option. So <laughs> I got some tree stands and I put some up. And I thought, well, maybe we'll use them. Right now, 13 years later, we have hardly ever used the tree stands. We use them as landmarks. I was going to say, about the, the, only, the only thing they're good for is a landmark. Yeah. Go to the tree stand around the – they're in some good spots. So we yeah. tell people, tree stand, but don't get in it because you might want to be able to move around a little bit. But uh, this one instance, the hunter – that uh, came with this other guy wanted to hunt in a tree stand. He had never been hunting ever. So I put him in a tree stand. I didn't realize this at the beginning. And maybe it's a question I should ask all the hunters. <laughs> Are you scared of the dark? This hunter was legitimately scared of the dark. Oh, wow. In forties and super scared of the dark. And he let me know that he doesn't like the dark. And so I told him, well, stay in the tree stand. I will be back at dark to get you. But I won't be here before dark. So that night we come to pick him up at dark. It was, you know, the sun had gone down. It wasn't pitch black yet. It was still twilight. He's gone. He's not in the tree stand. Oh, no. Where'd he go? Hmm. This was archery season, so there's no snow on the ground to track him. There's, I have no idea. So we start looking around. We can't find him. So we go back to the cabin, get a bunch of people, come back out, and we're looking for him. We, it took us six hours later. We finally found him way off the, the hill in the, some dark trees. He was huddled under a big pine tree. I had an arrow with a broadhead in each hand, poking. <laughs> and the only reason we found him was one of his arrows had the lighted knot, and it was glowing red. He wasn't even close to the trail or, or anything. We, I was pretty upset at the guy. He's like, what are you doing? What happened? And he says, well, it was getting close to dark, and I got scared. And so I thought I better hop down while I can still see the trail and go back to the cabin. Well, we were like four miles from the cabin. There's no way he's going to 
Yeah, who's hike, gonna hike there by the time it's dark? Yeah, right. So his thinking wasn't very logical, but uh, anyway, he he was scared of the dark, and we had to go find him. So that's the the precursor story leading up to this other story. So this hunter that was scared of the dark, I put him up on a a a little steep ridge that overlooks a bunch of game trails coming out of some bedding areas. Okay. And I went with the hunter that had the video guy following him. Well, we come back to a point, uh, it's kind of the Salt Lake area by the metal below the peak. And we were on horses. And I said, well, I better go get that guy that's scared of the dark. Uh, we had had some good talks with him and told him to stay put. Right, yeah. So he's staying put. He's not going to move. Well, I, one of the horses, and that ended up being the horse the the kid was on. Kid, I call him a kid. He was he was a man, but 22-year-old man. Uh, he was on a horse that just a little jittery in the dark. Not that... It was a mare, and she wasn't, I don't think she was blind, really, but she just didn't like the dark. Okay. And as long as you're moving and you're going, she's fine, no problem. But if you stop, she starts dancing around like she wants to go. And I knew that, and so I told him, get off your horse and tie it up. I told him and the hunter both to get off and tie your horse up. I'm going to go get this other guy. I'll be right back. Okay. So there, the hunter hopped off and tied his horse up. The kid had a great big backpack on his back with all his camera gear. And I think he had a hard time getting on the horse. He had never ridden a horse, didn't take lessons to even try it at all. So he, this was super new for him. He was, you know, in foreign waters, so to speak. He wasn't comfortable on the horse. And I told him to get off, and I think he had a hard time getting on because his backpack was so bulky. Okay. He didn't want to get off. And I, I ended up telling him three times that you should get off the horse. Well, looking back at it now, I should have made him get off the horse. But I didn't. I says, okay, the other horse is tied up. Maybe your horse will calm down and be just fine. But I got to go get this guy because he's scared of the dark. Mm-hmm. And I could have had them all go with me, but it was pretty steep terrain where I was going. And they're not the greatest horse riders, so they wouldn't have enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. It was easy to leave them there. And it would have been fine if they were off their horses. Horses were tied up. But since the kid stayed on the horse, his horse started dancing, especially when I rode off with two horses. His horse wanted to come. Oh, yeah. So it started really prancing around, and, and he was just pulling back and pulling back. And the hunter told me that every time the horse would would answer around, he just yanked back on the bridle and just pulled the reins back. Mm-hmm. And the horse started rearing a little bit, and oh. he went just harder and harder and just kept pulling and pulling. And the horse started rearing, and it was jumping higher and higher. And eventually the horse jumped completely over on itself. Oh, man. And and the saddle horn came down and, and squished this guy's stomach area. Mm. It was horrible. Yeah. By the time it happened, I was 
probably a quarter mile away up on the hill getting close to this hunter and it was a pretty calm pitch black clear night lots of stars and i hear through the night sky jonathan (laughs) oh no what happened yeah it's like whoa should i go back and talk to him should i go get this guy and then jonathan get back quick so i just turned around and ran back down there And we're going to stop this story right here. If you want to hear the rest of the story and others like it, be sure to tune in to the next episode. In the meantime, if you're an outfitter or guide and have some knowledge to share, hit me up on Instagram at the guide sessions or shoot me an email at the guide sessions at gmail.com. Also, feel free to reach out if you need some help planning your trip. I'd love to help. And again, Thank you for tuning in to this episode. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. So until next time, enjoy your adventure.